everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 276, Almost the End of the World, recorded March 12th, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where Geeks Rant doesn't happen anywhere else right here. We copyrighted that. Copyright Element OP 2017. Uh, my name Copy-lifted is. That. <laughs> my name is Mark, sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox, and I am joined this week, as always, by your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth the Command. Uh, no, wait, you're not that. <laughs> Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson and Miles the Aussiegeneer. Wake him. Hi, gentlemen. How are you? Pretty good, Mark. Looks like it's going to be one of those shows. I came here ready to rant. I'm going to blame all flubs here and and uh, furthermore on the fact that we had an arbitrary change of time. And being an American, I must complain about this. It's my 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 God-given duty as an American. It's actually part of the citizenship contract we all have to sign uh, that says I have to complain twice a year about the change to or from daylight saving time. And I think that was actually one of the amendments that didn't get ratified to the Constitution. So it's not technically a right. It's just. We don't change. In Arizona, we don't change. So I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, you're either sane or insane. I don't know which. Um, it, it's, you know, it was kind of nice. Um, my kids were out playing at, you know, seven o'clock and the sun was still up. But in the morning when I'm driving to work in pitch black at 650, I'm going to not like that so much. Um, you know, yep. let the seasons be the seasons. That's all. I just don't understand why we, it's, it's so, it doesn't matter. The, even back, if it did matter back in the days when you were saving candle wax or whatever, it just, we live in a society now where everything we do from the moment we go to bed to the moment we, or wait, the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, we we're under artificial lights, regardless of what time that is. So it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, come on, think about that for a minute. We build walls and black and hang curtains that we paid money for to turn on lights that cost us money because we don't want the sunlight coming in from outside, which is free. Still, they haven't. I think they're working on a tax plan for sunlight, but it, it technically, at least as of the recording, maybe by the time it comes out, but as of the recording, sunlight's still free. Wouldn't that be an awesome uh, sci-fi comedy book? You know, the the Zoltarians, the... the uh this the uh, governing body of soul come to us and say you know it turns out you have four billion years of pack, back taxes due um due to a clerical error uh we know and then i would say uh-uh i'm a young earther i only owe five thousand years <laughs> sorry i just ended that got you just right there didn't it <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, wouldn't that be great? They're trying to tax you, and then you come back with your religious beliefs? Because we have freedom of religion. Right. I'm only going to be paying for uh, 5000 The Zoltarians don't recognize freedom of religion. Um, uh, it's, I've mentioned it before, but that just made me think of a book called Year Zero. Uh, I believe that's the name of it. It's uh, The idea is that um, the the intergalactic body of governance discovers uh, human music and loves it and and downloads and makes quadrillions of copies of all human music and then discovers human copyright law and turns out that that uh uh, the recording industry of the of the world primarily in america actually now owns the wealth of a hundred billion universes um it's a great book you should check it out um 
as soon as I finish, you know, cause with, uh, with Amazon prime, you get one free book to read a month. Um, I'm currently doing the lost starship series, which took a book and a half to get good, but it's still, it's turned out to be really good. I might look that up next. I got like one more book in those. Let me, let me check and make sure I got it right. Year zero. Um, yeah, by Robert Reed. Um, Good book. Wasn't he in the Brady Bunch? Sure, why not? <laughs> I'm just going to go with that. Uh, and Seth, you saw a movie I want to see, so no spoilers, but your review of Logan. Okay. There are also, I hold that Avengers may be the greatest comic book movie ever because, you know, in the comic books, the Avengers were started to. Uh, stand up to a threat Loki made to the earth. And also in the Avengers, Hawkeye was originally evil before he was a supervillain before he was a superhero. So that was a nice little homage to the fans that Hawkeye had a bad side. And, but I think Logan is just a great freaking movie. It helps if you know, X-Men background, but if not, you can kind of pick it up fairly quickly it's just, it was really, really good. I don't, there's been some comic books that have sort of covered this era of Wolverine's life, but nothing like this. And, uh, I just, I really, really enjoyed it. It was really neat to see, um, to see Wolverine portrayed that way on screen. It turned out, I think, really good. And I think, I think this stands has just a great movie not just a great comic book movie. Well, that's high praise. You know, uh, back in 1999, when, when uh, Ted made a movie about computer fighting uh, called The Matrix, you know, uh, I heard all sorts of reviews about the, the special effects and how it was groundbreaking breaking and the, and the uh, action and the, um, the choreography was amazing. But nobody ever said it was a good movie. And then when I watched it, I was like, this is an amazing movie. Just as a sci-fi right. story, this is a really good movie, and it has all that other stuff. So it's good to hear somebody say that, you know, it's not just a, a fun romp. It's a good movie. Because I think right. oftentimes that gets lost when all the other things are, are good about something, too. Definitely. All right. Miles, any, any media in your life recently? I've been going back in time and revisiting old classics, um, which is weird. Old is relative, right? It's not that old. I've uh, <clears throat> I've been doing my Stanley Kubrick series, uh, series, so I thought, well, which one do I want to start with? You know, I could go with The Shining. I could go with, uh, well, I don't know. I ended up going with Full Metal Jacket. Just, you know, a light comedy. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't seen Full Metal Jacket, it's one of the most violent, vulgar movies ever made. Mm. And I think that's, that's part of its whole charm. Because it it's talking about a pretty nasty story in a pretty graphic way, but dude, uh, when I when I was younger, uh, I could I I got my hair shaved. I looked exactly like Private Pile, uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, and and like people where I worked, hey Seth, do Private Pile, and I would go, you know, and he, yeah, I mean it was it was dead accurate. It was kind of scary because you know he was a little crazy. Yeah. yeah, well, you, you know the guy who played the drill sergeant, that Lee, Arlie whatever his Irmy. name is? Yeah. Yeah, that's him. Um, well, I found out I was watching one of these. The reason why I started watching it was because I stumbled upon a making of documentary. And uh, I don't know, it was a YouTube thing. 
And apparently the guy who played that role, the way he got into that role, he was hired as a technical advisor to train the guy who was supposed to be the drill sergeant. And, you know, he would just be on set telling the guy what to say and how to say it. And I guess uh, Kubrick saw him or overheard him talking and got this idea in his head, okay, you're out, you're the drill sergeant. So he had no acting experience whatsoever. And from what I understand, 90% of all of the lines, which go down as sort of classic cinematography history, most of which probably can't be repeated here anyway, but the, <laughs> the sorts, you know, those lines that he'd say to people, he made that stuff up yeah. on the spot. There was no, it was not scripted. That was just made up. So I saw an interview with Arlie Ermey uh, when he was doing his history uh, channel show, and he it, it goes further than that. It wasn't just uh, Kubrick noticed him. He sent Stanley Kubrick something like six hours of video of him cussing out the camera. He just set up a camera, stood in front of it, and just for hours on end insulted every lineage of that camera uh, and sent it to Kubrick. And he was like, all right, you're my guy. Um, this is what he did, you know, for what, 30 years or whatever, as he was a gunnery sergeant, that's what he, that's what he did. And so, yeah, that's probably the most real part about that movie. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I sort of enjoyed that. So I think next week I'll move on to the shining and just gradually make my way through the whole collection here. <laughs> uh, I kind of went the other way, just on a whim. Um, I, uh, uh, started watching the wonder years on Netflix, um, I don't know that I'll continue it because <laughs> it it doesn't hold up as well as as when I was a kid. But uh, I, the, I I I just really like well done period pieces, and that that show for years uh, really did a good job of losing itself in a time period. Yep. All right, that's all I have to say about that. I do want to <laughs> say I I believe I I have mentioned it a time or two. Uh, and that's sarcasm because I know I have, and I and I warned you. I told you I'd be talking about a lot, but my my lighting project that I'm working on. I spent uh, five hours today down in the basement hacking away at Python, and uh, for my five hours of effort, I I now have two functions: one that makes the lights brighter, and one that makes the lights dimmer. Um, so it's, it's a lot of little return uh for on a lot of effort but uh it's been it's been interesting because uh, it's not just i'm learning a project it's i'm learning a language as i learn a project so every step along the way it's like okay what i need to do now is cast a variable uh as uh, an integer how do you do that in python oh you don't okay you just make a variable and then when you need an integer it you integer it okay didn't know that um <laughs> okay how do i make a variable uh, I mean, how, how do I make a function? So Google, Google, Google. Okay, there we go. Uh, define the function. Um, so it's, you know, I know how to code in a few different languages, and I've, I'm not a coder. I, I never say that. I know how to code in a few different languages, and I, and I can make some stuff up. And I found a, a base script, and I've been liberally uh, chopping away at the parts I don't need and keeping the parts I do need. But uh, I now have uh, four. I only have three sets of lights connected, but I have four zones set up. Um, that I can control independently, and I'm setting up uh, various functions. And I got I managed to get an interface to work with my uh, Harmony Remote infrared interface. So I've I've done a lot of work over the last couple of weeks with it, and uh, I'm super excited about it. But uh, right now, Python is uh, is making me hate it. <laughs> Probably could have done it in Java, but I wanted to learn Python. So I think you did the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole point of this project is not to have the thing. 
because I could write a check and have the thing tomorrow. It's to make the thing. Um, and so I'm doing it the hard way and loving every minute of it. Well done. Well um, done. I've, I've, been sending, I've been sending these guys videos uh, as I go. I've been trying to document the process. And I, I'm sure at any point now, one of them is going to say, stop sending me these stupid videos. We don't care. But No, no, you know. no, no. Bring, on, bring them on. <laughs> I'm loving them, man. They're great. I'm, every time I watch it, I'm thinking, that's so cool. I could do something like that in my office. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very motivational. They're great. Cause, Keep it up. You know, when I spend four hours doing a two-minute demo and I finally get it to work, it's like, oh, I have to share this with somebody. And so I, I start, start spraying out the emails. Um, <laughs> as I, you know, I, I said with my coffee project low f- these four years ago that I would document all of it and, and make that available. I'm saying that about this too. Um, so you take that as, as to mean whatever you think it means. My intention the, is to document The difference this is you're actually doing this one. Well, I'm at least taking some video. Yeah. I mean, the other one, I even set up a website and wrote a few articles, and, and there it sits. Um, I'm good at doing. I'm not so good at documenting. Um, all right. That's it. Let's move on um, to some mini rants. And uh, we have something unusual uh, in the mailbag. Uh, one of our listeners says I'm wrong, so I thought we'd just start with that because it's unusual. Uh, Paul says, obligatory, hi guys. Mark, you're wrong! In episode two of The Expanse, there is a physics problem with the wrench when the wrench flies away when Holden releases it. I didn't even know the guy's name. So already, he's way more into it than I am. Um, But it's not what you said. A few seconds before the wrench zips off, Alex mentions that the ship is underway. So the engines are running and the ship is accelerating. If the acceleration is 1G, that means a loose object will accelerate toward the rear at 32 feet per second every second. After three seconds, the wrench would appear to hold him and Amos to be going 96 frame, uh, feet per second, over 60 miles per hour, and increasing. In reality, of course, the ship is speeding up and leaving the wrench behind. The actual physics problem is that Holden and Amos aren't holding on for dear life. Just being in contact with the ship doesn't make them immune to the force acting on it. To not go flying away sideways like the wrench should be some kind of platform at a right angle to the ship. Okay. There were there were many other problems with that show, and if you want to say I'm wrong on that one, I will accept the chastisement. He says, that said, thanks for a great show. Geek Rant 273 was one of the best. No, actually, the best one ever. I think uh, the only think I'd add, the only thing, okay, typo okay the only thing i'd add to spend a little for fun uh save a little and invest starting when you're young in your 20s you idiot sorry i'm talking to my younger self there and giving giving makes you just feel good is to spend wisely and maintain your health so there you go if you're going to spend spend wisely and to maintain your health so there you go paul um has that say any comment on that guys professor paul wow I'm a man. I uh, yep. Okay. I'll t- whatever you say. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Uh, nothing here. Sorry. <laughs> you know the 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 one sure thing as you get older is that you realize there were things you wish you'd done when you were younger. Um, that's just the reality. And uh, so take it from some guys who who may be older than you. Um, start now. When was the right time to start investing? Yesterday. Okay. 
moving on. And John has a message specifically for Miles, but I'm going to share it with everybody because I think it'll be interesting. It says, I just wanted to make sure that you know about the TRS-80 festivals. Since this is the 40th anniversary of the TRS-80 Model 1, the Coco Fest is making a special effort to let the TRS-80 monochrome users know that they are welcome to the Coco Fest and that they are welcome to bring their hardware. You're welcome to bring any system uh, you choose any year. And there's a couple links that I will put in the show notes for Coco Fest and Tandy Assembly. So, uh, Miles, going to go nerd it up with some TRS-80 fans? You know, I probably should. I, um, Full disclosure, I was one of the early guys to help start the TRS-80 Trash Talk podcast, which I'm not on. I just, I've been on it as a guest, but... Uh, I kind of helped Pete and the guys sort of get themselves going with that. And um, so I'm pretty much ingrained in that community fairly deeply. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I, I know about the, the Coco crew and those guys and and the, uh, the Coco Fest has been going on for years and years and they've got a huge community. Uh, and I think they meet, is it in Illinois? I think it's every year. Got one coming up in April, I believe. And uh, and then this year is the first of uh, uh, the Tandy Assembly, which is a, a community of all Tandy uh, owners from, as he says, monochrome and colour from the old to the mid-range all the way through to the, the Model 16 uh, and probably beyond. So uh, it is a big deal for, the, for the, that community and it's a very large community, uh, surprisingly very, very large. And yet it doesn't get the love that the retro computer world gives the Apple people and the Commodore people. So I, I've, uh, I've got a soft spot in my heart for TRS-80 because it was my first computer. So I'm uh, all for that. So nice plug, John. And uh, yeah, I encourage anybody to, to go along. Absolutely. I don't have that fondness for that, even though it was my first computer. My brother had a VIC-20. I had a, 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 T- a TRS-80. Um, just, you know. I, I nostalgia is not a thing that it's I didn't get that gene. Uh, so it's just it doesn't work on me. <laughs> Much like, you know, human emotions and you know, general empathy just doesn't work for me. My they're kinda like they're kinda like the technical version of guys who restore old cars. Yeah, I get it. You know. It, it, it's kinda like that. Um I've tried over the years to collect things. I always thought, you know, to have a collection, to spend time uh, seeking out the rare thing or, or refurbishing to, to have a complete set of anything, being a completist that appeals to me to have a, a full complete set of something, but it just never, never stuck. I'm not a collector. I'm, I'm a, a gatherer. It's a different thing. You know, I will amass piles of stuff, but not, not really collect, you know, in an intense sort of way. You know, some do, right. some don't. Uh, Seth had uh, a huge collection of soda cans at one point. I don't know if that was a collection or if he was just too lazy to take them out to the trash. But it, was, it was tremendous. Yeah, you you and Cole cured me of that though. So, <laughs> I, yeah. I, look, I was in college. I had this thing. I just wanted to see if I could build the cans across the window. You know, just not going to do anything else with them. Um, you know, throw them away at the end because I was in a dorm room. You know, what are you going to do with a dorm room? You do stupid stuff in a dorm room. And so when they came over for pizza and chess, we played pizza and chess. Was it choose- uh, was one night it a week? I don't remember. Because yeah. we're nerds and couldn't get a date. So, yeah. <laughs> 
I, th- I think it was Tuesday, but I'm not positive of the night, um, over half a life ago. But anyway, they would come and throw stuff at them to knock them down. And, uh, you know, I think they didn't throw them to knock them down. They threw, they threw stuff at it because they knew it would get a rise out of me. And then they came over one time and they were gone and they didn't know what to do. So, yeah. And to, to say, to fill the window, you, you, you've got to understand this, this high rise dorm that we all lived in, the window was eight feet across and six feet high. So he was going to fill a massive array, hundreds, if not a thousand or more cans. And it was just too tempting to see them all balanced there to not destroy them. I, I just, I couldn't help it. I, I've apologized many times. I, I apologize again publicly. It was a mean <laughs> thing for me, but I just couldn't not do it. I, I was compelled to make them fall. I mean, it's okay because I I won more in chess than either of them, yeah, so because it was a you know I I think they were just upset at me. Yeah. So I thought I knew how to play chess until I met people who did, and then <laughs> yeah. All right, Pure moving on. <laughs> Last bit of of uh, feedback from Ben he says drug companies aren't inherently evil all the time. Uh, last week, you folks said that drug companies are criminals. Okay, I don't remember saying that. Maybe Miles did, but. We'll Probably. go with it. Uh, don't forget about their major co-conspirators, the FDA. I get that we need safe drugs and treatments, but their costs, because of regulations, are way over the top. Complexity and overboated bureaucracy should be purged from the approval process. This bloated monster needs to be reduced, like they used to say on the show Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, Ben. First of all, quick covering for them. I think you're a plant put in by either the drug companies or the FDA when they're when they're products that have been out and approved for years jump hundreds of percent in price and their um, stock options stock buybacks to fund their stock options and bonuses are more than entire lower levels of the company make combined it's not just the approval process the approval process does a little bit to inflate the price but i don't mind paying more for something that is safer but they're out of control and you know good 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 try there come back next week with something else you just don't pass the mustard bin sorry next so let me give you a personal example of how this is definitely not fda regulation you get you may have heard of it you may not have uh because it made news for a while but this affected me personally i am an asthmatic and have been all my life uh two of my children are asthmatics so those little albuterol rescue inhalers are um uh, ubiquitous around my home. They're they're a medical necessity um, because at some point somebody's going to need them. Albuterol um, was a common drug whose patent had expired um, many years ago, and you could pick up uh, a, a a rescue inhaler for five bucks. Generic albuterol. Uh, it was all over the place. Um, the problem was not really the problem. the The uh, perceived problem was that the propellant was a CFC. Um, now let's take into consideration the fact that those things have tiny, tiny amounts of medication in them and you take a puff and you inhale it, you absorb most of it. And so you breathe out a little bit. So the actual effect of, uh, CFCs on the ozone, if you even believe that to be valid science, there's some debate about that is so minimal that the government actually said, you know what? We're not even going to count that in the CFC ban. Albuterol doesn't count in the CFC ban. We're going to make an exception for it. A huge lobby um, organized uh, an effort over the course of several years to systematically uh, introduce and reintroduce the uh, uh, removal of those CFC uh, 
uh, containing drugs from the market because it's just not safe and it would destroy the the universe if these uh, CFCs were allowed to continue. And after years of extreme pressure from this lobby, finally the law, the exemption in the law uh, banning uh, CFCs for albuterol uh, was rescinded. And now albuterol uh, containing CFCs uh, are now no longer uh, on the market. That lobby was the drug manufacturer who makes uh, Provenal, the, the replacement to albuterol. So their new medicine is Provenal. It's albuterol, but with a non-CFC uh, propellant. And that non-CFC propellant is proprietary, and therefore it is now $75 per rescue inhaler instead of $5 per rescue inhaler. So the drug company spent billions of dollars, millions at least, of dollars buying politicians to get their own product banned so that they could now have a proprietary product that they could make billions of dollars off of. So don't tell me drug companies aren't criminals. You literally endangered my life and my my lives of my daughters to make a buck, you cheap jerks. Yeah, I, you know, I don't want to... Sorry, go ahead, Seth. I was going to say, in Korea and in pretty much every country in the world not named the United States of America, when a businessman gives money to a politician that is a crime and treated thusly, in America, that's called a lobbyist, and they make bukus of money. So... Mm. You know, there's lots of problems around. So just saying. Yeah, I'm kind of uniquely positioned in this because I happen to be employee number 636 of the world's largest biotech corporation, Amgen. And I joined them back in 1990 before they even had a product. And I saw that corporation go from a bunch of guys in lab coats who invented stuff and were trying to do the right thing and, you know, help people out and help health and all that good stuff, all the way through to a 38,000 employees and some ridiculous income levels in the $40 billion a year mark and everything like that. And I saw that, um, so I've seen both sides of the equation. I've seen the inventors, the, the guys in the lab coats, I've written their software, I've helped them out on projects, I've written software in the clinical trials groups, and I spend most of my time in the sales and marketing area. So I, I know that world very, very well. And what I can tell you is that an average drug company to produce a product and bring it to market costs around about $100 million in terms of research and and trials and everything. And we would, back in the day when I was working for Amgen, we had two products. One was called Epigen, one was called Nupigen. Epigen became very famous because although it was designed for people on dialysis, to give them uh, an increase in their red blood cell flow. It was a biotech magnifier of red blood cells. It was most famously used by Lance Armstrong on the Tour de France to bump up his capability to handle EPO, right? And so, uh, yeah, we invented EPO. That was a weird thing. Anyway, we didn't sell it for that indication. We were not licensed by the FDA to do so. But somehow things got out on the black market as things do. We also had another product called Nupigen. What it did was did the same thing for white blood cell count. And the people who benefited from that were people on chemotherapy. Um, You know, if you ever get cancer, God forbid, you don't want to go on chemotherapy because uh, it's going to hurt. Some people choose not to and die. Some people choose to and die, sometimes of the chemotherapy. Uh, what Nupigen would do would give you a chance. It would actually bolster your immune system, would bolster your energy level. It would allow you to have a life while you're on chemo, 
was a miracle drug. Um, between the two of those drugs, we produced them in, <laughs> this is going to sound funny, beer vats. We teamed up with a company out of Japan called Kirin, who was one of the largest beer manufacturers, and we bought some of their very large beer vats, and we had a way of putting this stuff on a Petri dish in the bottom of the vat, and then a uh, kind of a accelerant was added to it, which would enable it to mass produce itself. And next thing you know, the whole thing's full of this liquid, and we'd pull a little vial, and I'm talking about little vial, right, the sort of thing you'd stick in, you know, a needle in to make an injection. And we'd fill that little vial with that fluid. It would cost us 45 cents. That little vial sold for $150. So their margins are huge. But that's fine. Look, if you take a risk, if you're in business and you put $100 million down and you're going to you know, ride that risk, you deserve a reward, right? But when is enough enough? The problem is that the guys who went out there and invented that drug, they're long gone they, they got some stock options. They went off into the sunset. They're done. What's left are a bunch of lawyers and bureaucrats who are just trying to make more and more and more out of that invention. You know, we would lobby the government to get five-year patent, seven-year patent, 15-year patent so that we could continue the onslaught of this 45-cent product selling for $150 forever, you know, ad, ad infinitum because it made Wall Street really, really, really happy. And then what happened was when 15 years were up, they changed the name of the product, reapplied for another patent and did it all over again. Meanwhile, there's people out there who don't have insurance or can't afford it, who are on chemo or, you know, somehow battling to pay for it. And they deserve the same chance for a 45 cent vial of liquid. <laughs> you can see where the dichotomy is. So I understand Ben's position. I understand the FDA are there to protect us. We had to go through five, you know, five phases of clinical trial, and it all does make scientific sense as you sort of. But yeah, it can take ten years. But at the end of the day, Mark, you're right. It stops people dying, and so I see both sides of it. I see that the original people trying to invent great stuff, and the people getting it through FDA and getting it out into the public, they're heroes. And then after five or seven years of them being heroes, they should have gone on and done something else. But no, what happened was all the lawyers took over and they just want to perpetuate this thing and they want to turn it into a commodity and they want to sell it like they sell futures on wheat or beef cattle. And it, that's sick. So, yeah. Anyway, I know I've given you a long long answer to a short, <laughs> short email, but... That's kind of where I sit. There's nothing wrong with making a profit, but at some point, I mean, that's the whole that's the whole reason patents expire and copyright expires. The idea is that at some point you no longer have the right to make money off it. You've made all the money off of it. It goes into public domain. Um, you know, uh, Benadryl, for example, is a public domain drug now. It's a generic drug. Anybody can make it. There's no longer a patent on it. Um, it's been around for 70 years or something like that. Um, that's appropriate. But when you're, when your entire business or you hire an entire wing of, of uh, employees whose job is to make sure that you, the, the gravy train continues, you've lost sight of the prize there. And, you know, Disney's doing that every time, uh, uh, the patents uh, or the copyright starts to expire for, uh, Mickey Mouse, suddenly, uh, there's a new bill passed. And it didn't just happen. You know, there are people lobbying right now knowing that uh, that uh, that time, most recently, it was Life of the Artist plus 50 years. So 50 years after uh, Walt Disney died, there's going to be a new law. I mean, there, there, you can count on it. 
50 years after the death of Walt Disney, there will be a new Copyright Update Act. And they're lobbying for that now. They're making that happen now. At some point, you just got to let the golden goose die. And I don't know how long it is, but 15 years certainly seems reasonable to me. And, you know, how many of these drugs are developed with grants from the federal government? That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. If you have private money and you raise the money yourself and you did your money, hey, fine. Milk your milk your golden cow till your hands get cramped with arthritis and you can't <laughs> do it anymore. But if you're taking my tax dollars and inventing a drug because my tax dollars enabled you to get the drug, I get it for cost or cost plus a very reasonable fee. You yeah. can't turn around and get free money, then extort. And extortion, it's not extortion because it's legal, but if I tried it, I would go to prison. So you can't not extort from the people who you took the money from to develop the product in the first place. If, if the, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Why is the, FCC staffed by people who used to work for communication companies and not by people who were just communication consumers. Why isn't there somebody representing the consumer at the highest level and not just somebody representing the business that would solve all these problems. So anyway, you know, if, if we wanted to, if we wanted to, you know, switch over to this week in politics, I got a little (laughs) bit of passion about this because it's it's stupid you can't take my well i mean obviously you can because you've been doing it for generations but you shouldn't be allowed to take my money to develop your product and then take my money to sell your product i'm an investor and i should be treated as such yeah i i think we we have a a future 10 minute tirade topic right there Um, you know and and i along the lines of stupid things people does there's the the whole estate tax you know just because you die, we get our hands on it. Why is that even a thing? Uh, but, you know, it'd be a great discussion we could have. But the discussion for the night, um, this is sort of a thought experiment I came up with last week at, at the at the end of the show as we were discussing it. And then uh, later I heard uh, some other podcast talking about it. Um, and I just want to go on the record as saying uh, this was an original idea to me, if not a unique one, obviously. But they've the th- bugged our they've yeah, bugged our software. They know it. of a thing in Google Hangouts that lets them hear us. It must be it. Um, but the idea is, what what would happen if there were no no technology? Um, and, and and that you know to go that's that's too broad. So I, I posed the guys a challenge, uh, a thirty day challenge. What what would you do? If you agreed, you signed on the dotted line for whatever reason, uh, billion dollars at the end of it, whatever your your justification is, that you could not use anything digital for 30 days. So that's not to say you can't use technology, right? A bicycle is technology. A pencil is technology. So I, I restricted it specifically to digital. What what how, What would your life look like if you started today and said for the next 30 days, I will not avail myself of consume or or in any way make use of anything digital anything with a processor in it um and so this was just sort of the thought experiment that we started with um so uh i've got some thoughts but uh i'm gonna go i'm gonna start with miles miles whoa go uh bicycles (laughs) that's a good start I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because I'm old enough to have remembered life before computers, but not much though. I, you know, as a, maybe a kid growing up in my 
early teens. What was life like then? Well, I didn't have to work, so that was a good thing. <laughs> but I did have to go to school, and I had to ride my bike to school. So I guess bicycles will be a thing again. We'll, we'll stop people killing people on the road on their bicycles. We'll make accommodation for them. Um, I guess... So the interesting Man, the, do do? the the interesting uh, thing here is that uh, we we thought we might talk about like you know the EMP or the nuclear strike that wipes out all technology, but this is this is even more. Everybody else has it, but you don't. Um, oh oh, so you're living in a world where everyone else has digital technology, and you're trying to survive as an analog. Exactly. Uh huh. Wow. Well, I tell you what, you get angry real fast, wouldn't you? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I get at least guns are analog. Um, right. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, there is that sniper rifle out there that runs Linux. Oh, so yeah, not true. all guns are analog. <laughs> so I, I was just thinking in, in basic categories. Like, so work. I, I think we all have to take a mulligan on this one because we all work in, in the tech industry. Um, I, I can't do the job I do uh, without tech. So, uh, you know, for just 30 days... You know, I could go be a, a landscaping contractor or something, um, or or wash dishes or something, but but not just for thirty days. So I'm just gonna kind of lay that one off the table. I can't do my job without technology. But I, then I got to thinking about finances, um, my money. I don't, I don't, I don't money. I don't carry cash. I don't write checks. It's all bits. It's all digital. Uh, I would have to stop all my e bills. Okay, but how would I do that? I'd have to call the bank. Okay, how am I going to call the bank? Because my phone's digital too. I would have to drive to the bank. Does my truck count? Because it's got a processor in it. Um, you know, it's a, a, a computer-controlled fuel injector. So I would have to go sell my truck and buy something made pre-1985 and then drive to the bank and then ask them to stop my e-bills and start mailing me uh, my bills. Um and then I'd have to call each of the like my electric company and and my credit card companies, all those people. But I don't. How do you, how how do you find phone numbers? I don't know. I, <laughs> no I say okay, Google. <laughs> um, is is there such a thing as a phone book? I haven't seen one. There hasn't no. been delivered one delivered to my home in years. I don't even know. I would have to. F I would have to go to a payphone. No, there aren't payphones anymore. I'd have to find some analog phone. Do they even make analog phones? There's not an analog phone line in my house. It doesn't exist. Um. I suppose I could call somebody to have it set up, but then there's that whole call thing. I have to go to somebody else's house um, who has an analog phone and s call information. I think that's still a thing. Um, uh, but can you can you talk to analog? To, can you talk to computer systems without a touchtone phone? That's digital. That doesn't work. Um, Somehow I've got to find the numbers to my my people and say stop sending me my e-bills. Well, hang um, on, hang on a second. You're bringing up a really interesting point because I do remember what life was like when I was living in Australia before everything was digital, and you did that. So you got on your bicycle and you rode to the bank and you deposited your cash, and the person took your deposit book and they wrote on it in pen, in pen that you'd made a deposit or they stamped it with a stamp. There was no computer. It was just done all analog. It was just done without that. And so interesting thing is I went back to uh, a, a, a town where we used to live and, um, and then we used to live there in the mid-90s. So you'd think this was 
highly digital, but it really wasn't. Everyone had old cottages and everyone knew each other's neighbor and everyone walked to the local grocery store, which happened to be the end of the street. And, you know, it was that old thing. And I remember we had a bank on the street and I used to walk into the bank and I used to deposit checks, I guess it was the thing at the time. And they'd take your checks. I go back there last year, the bank shut down. There's no bank in that area within... I don't know, four or five miles. So even if you were to want to go to the bank, there is no bank because the bank's online, so they don't want brick and mortar. So here's the thing, though. Here's the the connect the dots kind of, you know, next rational thought thing that comes from that. Um, Does that mean that we've created an artificial need to run at 150 miles an hour and we're the ones who've created this world that we all have to be slaves to our technology rather than benefiting from its positive because and and the ultimate beneficiaries of that are not us they're the banks who don't now have to pay for brick and mortar and that they can make buku money without us ever visiting their actual facility i mean do you see where I'm going on that? <laughs> Maybe I'm stretching beyond where you're talking about, but I kind of see that, wow, this is a really inter- – keep going with this, Mark. This is really interesting. <laughs> well, it's just because so much touches – like, for example, there is a, a brick-and-mortar bank I could walk to. It's not far from me. Um, but when you walk in there – the first thing they do is uh, they say, well, you swipe your, your credit card um, it's, uh, or your debit card. It's got a chip uh, now, so I can't use that. So I have to say, no, you've got to identify me some other way. I've got a number. And so we could do that. That's fine. But I can't use an ATM now. I can't use uh, any of my credit cards. I can't do any of that, even if it's the, you know, the, the old uh, scrub a paper across a carbon thing. I mean, that would be fine, but who's, who's got that? Um, and then, you know, moving, moving on to the home front, um, just as something as simple as my, my heating and cooling, digital thermostats in my house. I've got to rip those off the wall and put analog ones on, which means I have to remember to turn it off when I leave the house. Otherwise, I come home and my house has been kept at a comfortable 72 degrees for 12 hours when there was nobody there. Um, so my bills are going to go up now. The bills that I'll finally, in six to eight weeks, get through the mail um, and I'll have to write a check. I don't know where the checks are. Um I would have to ask my wife where the checks are. Um, presumably, we'd, we would run out of checks because we don't write checks, so we don't have that many. How do you buy new checks? I, d- I don't know. Um, I do it online. I guess you can go to the bank and they can give you checks. I could probably do that. In your first thing of checks that you order, you get an order form where you can then, there's a number you can call, or you can do it through your bank, but it costs more to do it yeah. through your bank. So out in the country where I live, and yes, I know this because I have done it, so don't even start your emails. I'm this kind of geek. You can use a rotary dial on our phone. Maybe you can't in the city where they've upgraded your infrastructure this millennium, but where I live, (laughs) you can plug in something and twirl the knob and actually physically dial. Uh, 
Um, and but what happens those, if you say press one to continue? If you get one of those things, what happens is the system. This is up to the individual place you call. Usually, usually, and it's becoming less and less popular. After a certain time, you automatically get transferred over to an operator. But that there isn't a standard. It's up to the company you are calling and how they have their um, IV hell set up to either route it to an operator or just say, I'm sorry, I couldn't recognize your selection and hang up. So it depends on the company you call as to that. So, and like the bank that my parents use and I used to use is swiping a card chips what are you talking about you walk in there hey mr anderson how are you doing they know you by sight you know and they accept a signature um or you know like if i use my parents account sometimes i have to show my driver's license because they don't believe that my name's on the signature card that i physically went and signed until they go back and look at the records and see wow your signature is on here so it is possible out in the boondocks where um you know, the digital age has not kind of caught up, but yeah, I understand, you know, I would have to get rid of my car and find some gas guzzling hunk uh, to America's glory days and drive it around, but it would be possible. I have options. Um, one, I can dust off my carpentry skills and build stuff. Um, I can repair, um, electronics because I actually have an analog multimeter. Yes, I have it. Yes, it works. Yes, I tested it. So I have an analog multimeter. I can tell if the electricity is on or not. So I don't get electrocuted. Um, you know, I have wood I can cut to sell for the winter. Um, I can farm my land. I can, you know, get more goats and become a goat herder extraordinaire. So, um, I, I, here's a question. I don't know if any of the movie theaters around me are non-digital theaters yet. I don't know if any of them still use the reels or if they've all gone digital. So I might not be able to go to the movies, but where I live, libraries still have physical books made of paper. So I can check out these books books you speak of, (laughs) man. They are, they're imagination. They're, they're the beta form of virtual reality that you people know nothing about. So, and here's the thing you can't do like the way I invest. I can't do that anymore because trade King that's uh that's all on the internet. I would have to go to a brokerage company and just get reamed doing uh, trades instead of doing them myself. So that would vastly change the way I invest for the future. So yeah, you'd have to go in person to the bank or call them if you can find your, you know, analog phone. Right. Um, and, and make that happen. So I guess it's okay for other people to use technology on your behalf in this scenario. Um, well, I would think if you can get to the front end of their system, you can't control their system. So otherwise, no, you know, you couldn't live in today's right. electric economy because every, you know, you couldn't buy at a store because even a convenience store does their ordering via computer. So if you're doing that, you know, y'all would be, you would be dead in the city, starved to death. <laughs> I would have a chance with my 25 acres in the country, uh, and miles, um, I don't know, he could, he could sell his rent houses for a lot of cash and move somewhere. <laughs> so, um, you know, there, there, there would be hope, but I would think if you can get to their system, how they manage their system is beyond your concern and beyond the scope of this experiment. You know, so on day, you know, uh, minus one, right before you started it, I could go to the bank and draw out all my money in cash. That's a right. thing I could do. 
right right uh and prepare for my 30-day adventure and, and and take a lot of that banking off and and um i could go to the local uh mini mart and buy uh what are those things money orders uh to pay my bills so those are that would take some planning right that's not a the system crashes today um you know i was just thinking in terms of entertainment um everything i like to do is digital except maybe napping um, I mean, uh, there's board games and card games and family sing-alongs, but in my family, that's good for about 12 minutes. Um, and then, and then we're done. So if, assuming if I'm doing this, my kids and my wife are doing it too. Um, that's probably the biggest pinch we'll have. What, what are we going to do? How are we going to spend our downtime? Um, which maybe miles going back to your point, we may have created the need for advanced leisure in this system that we've built, you know, we have more spare time when you were the farmer, uh, eking out a living in an analog, you know, dirt based world. Um, leisure time was, you know, between 10 PM and 6 AM when you was too dark to work. Um, and you sat by the, the candlelight and you read the Bible. Um, but now in this world where everything, everything is accelerated, everything is faster. I think maybe leisure is a greater need than it has been at other times in our history. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be good with that. I, there's one thing they, that Australia has always got in its culture and it's probably is uh, a lot to do with this um, non-digital metaphor because it, it, as much as it, there, are, there are parts of that country which are identical to the United States in terms of technology development and people in IT and high tech and all that, they tend to be focused around the major cities, particularly on the East Coast. The rest of the country is much more like their countries. You know, they rely on farming and mining and, and transport and shipping. And people's lives are probably not all that different than what they were 30 years ago. They can live analog. And in those areas, the thing that most people do on a social basis is sport. They get together with their friends and their family and their peers and they join the local football team, the local cricket team, the local baseball team. They get into horse riding. They get into physical activities that are done as a team. And that team becomes a social support system, which, you know, they have matches every week. They practice once or twice a week for the matches. Um, everybody goes out to the pub after the game and has a beer with each other. And it's a very social world. And so to say that you take the technology away, that's not going to affect a guy who likes to kick a football or play soccer or baseball or whatever it is. They'll move towards their social tribe and they'll all be supporting each other at a social level. Um, so that works. And, and it doesn't require a computer. And you can go, the, go to play a game of baseball with a bat on your back on your bicycle and you won't touch a piece of digital technology on the way. Yeah, my kids of, have, go ahead, or, I was going to say, one of my favorite pastimes is still available to me, splitting wood. Um, I have like a 16-pound mall. I love to swing that and split wood. So I can do that, you know, digital, analog, EMP, whatever. As, <laughs> as, long, as, as long as I can cut the tree down, which I would hate to use an axe. So as long as I have gas for my chainsaw and I can cut the log, then I can have fun splitting that thing until, you know, I run out of trees. So, you know, you could work Sudoku puzzles, I guess. There's, there are things that you could do. Oh, no, not on a, I don't want to do Sudoku on a pen. 
fucking paper. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, crossword puzzles. Uh, my kids have recently the the thing in the neighborhood is is Nerf Wars. Uh, uh, I, I had no idea Nerf guns were going for 150 bucks these days, but they are. It's crazy. Um, when when I was a kid, they were uh, you know little darts that went five feet if you were lucky. These things are these are mass produced weapons of mass Nerf destruction. Um, but anyway, that my kids have spent all day today outside playing and uh you know they built a a fort in the backyard out of amazon prime boxes which says something about my purchasing habits doesn't it um uh but you know that is that is definitely an option but for me personally um i would have to rediscover you know some things like again like I, i play the bass guitar but it's an electric guitar, so yeah, I I would have to to go find you know an acoustic one. Uh, I sing. There there are things that I like to do, and and that's fun. But if I if we're just talking about an immediate transition starting tomorrow, um, work and leisure are are two big things where I would take a big hit. I just I have invested myself so fully in the digital world that I just uh, would struggle to to even consider how to get out of it i you know i often joke i've surrendered my higher brain functions to google um i don't know uh i know my wife's phone number because she's had it for almost 20 years i don't know almost any other phone number i don't know my boss's phone number i don't know my own office phone number i don't know my 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 daughter has a cell phone i don't know her phone number i don't know my best friend's phone numbers i don't know these things it's okay google call seth that's your phone number seth um i don't i don't know the actual digits um so there, it's it's interesting that I have invested maybe more heavily than most uh, in the the analog the digital culture, and so as I continue this thought experiment, um, I don't know how to function anymore. I'm not saying I couldn't do it; it would be a a new relearning process. But just sitting here talking to you, I don't know how to function analog. I don't know how to do it. I think you, I don't, I don't I think know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think we humans have a beautiful way of adjusting to the surroundings if things change that gets we get through. And some, you know, look, some experiences are not always positive. If you were thrown in jail and you were not given access to any digital technology, that's not a positive thing. But you will adjust to it, um, hopefully. If you if you find yourself without the digital technology, we can adjust downward we can adjust back to ways of doing things if you were there are people out there who are electing to adjust to non, non-digital lifestyles and that maybe they go and buy a, an old vw microbus and travel around the country going from place to place and all they're doing is filling it up with gas and meeting people and picking up the odd bit of farming work here and there to make a couple of bucks and buying some cheap food and then they're on to the next place they're kind of gypsies um and that's not that's yeah. not a bad thing. The question is not can it be done. The question is can I do it? Um, and if I were forced to, sure, I could adapt. Like you're saying, I, I I know I'm confident in my abilities to you know to figure things out that I could figure out how to do it. But uh, I've been thinking about this for a week now uh, since we talked about it last week, and I don't have, I can't envision options right now. Um, I would have to be in that situation and I have to work my way out of that puzzle, uh, to learn how to do it. It's, uh, it's pretty fascinating as, uh, you know, the, the old, uh, uh, 
wrong and entirely specious but uh, popular uh, analogy of cooking a frog by turning the water uh, heat up slowly um i have i have been so steeped in the ever increasing temperature of of rising technology that uh it's it is my world um and i embrace that i i i i'm ex- i wave that flag proudly i am a digital um you know uh native is not the right word because it was it came along later but i'm i'm a digital adopter i'm excited about it i like to do it i dive into that world whenever possible but it does sort of point out some weaknesses that uh, as you get farther up in abstraction uh as there are fewer people who understand the foundations you know we've brought micro up a few times on this podcast in the recent past uh that's one of the things he's championing is is you know if you want the the pretty clean world somebody's got to do the dirty work you know if you want bridges somebody's gonna got to know how to pour concrete um and those skills those hard skills are being lost in favor of soft skills uh and the entire global society is losing that structure and you know i mean you could quote any uh ray bradbury or or uh gene roddenberry um story about how that happens how the masters lose control of their technology and then the technology breaks down because they don't have the masters to run it um that's there's a reason those are popular uh, dystopian uh, storylines because they're they're very reasonable and very real possibilities yeah i you i think you're really this is get it, it can be i i'm not concerned so much about how we would adapt if we didn't have to deal with digital it's interesting to imagine our lives before and after what i'm freaked out about is realizing that and and i guess i knew this but maybe it's just subconscious and we just forget about it after a while but you know the digital world hasn't necessarily made us happier people it hasn't made us uh it's made us benefit in a lot of things that are probably somewhat irrelevant. I mean, our, our entertainment comes to us at any moment. Our, you know, we don't starve because we can have food at any moment. Transport's not an issue because you can always jump in your car and go anywhere you want. Phones and communication is it's great to have a phone. I can call anybody. How many times do you actually call people? I mean, do we, we, we isolate ourselves in this world of of self-fulfilling digital prophecy and we're given all of these great tools to socialize and we don't socialize i mean i'm sorry facebook likes is not socializing right man i I, uh i'm listening to a podcast Uh, a friend of mine he's a preacher uh pastor of a church and they put out a podcast and i just recently started listening to it and he was they were they're going through the series talking about why you should read the Bible. And so they were talking about how, you know, the Jews existed within the Roman empire and he was throwing out some Roman history. Well, it happened to be, I heard this podcast like two days after I had listened to the history of Rome podcast, you know, which I'm still going through cover that exact same time. And so I sit down to write him a message on Facebook and then I realized I haven't talked to him in over a year and I thought, I think of him as a very close friend, but then, you know, because I see his stuff show up on my Facebook feed and, you know, and occasionally he'll do a, he'll like, or something like that. And I'll like, but we haven't spoke or talked or saw each other in many years. And, and that, and that's a friend. So, you know, um, it's just, it's exactly what you say, Miles stuff is easier. And because it's easier, we don't value it. 
you know, right. before there was email, people used to write letters. I mean, man, if you read letters that people used to write to each other, they were flowing and had a point and filled with emotions. And now it's all LOL. See you soon. Let's hang out. And that's considered, you know, you can't fit more than that in 140 characters. So nobody has time for it. So yay, digital world. But you know, what's even scarier though, is that it's uh, you succumb. Mark, you were kind of alluding to this. You succumb to it little by little, you know, that little benefit because your phone is faster or your, Fitbit tracks you're running or, you you know, all these additional value-added technologies which are supposed to be assistive to us. And what happens is that we spend all of our time with the assistive and not and we forget what it's trying to assist. And, and that's a problem. At the same time, it feels like we're now the subjects of those that own the technology. So your bank isn't there anymore because they closed because they're online. So you, you go online and, and maybe the day that you walk into a representative company who is selling that product that they normally sell online and the person, uh, you know, serving you has been trained for less than three months, is reading a script, following a standard operating procedure manual, can't think for themselves, has no authority to make a decision to actually solve a problem or help you out. And it's just there standing going, thank you, sir. Welcome to our store. And really has no ability to say anything more. There may as well be a, a cardboard cutout with an audio clip just playing because they're not being trained. And the reason for that, in my, my opinion, is that the, the companies that run those, those stores don't want to be training people in there to think. They want to be training robots so that they don't have to pay that much. Otherwise, what ends up happening is all the power gets distributed out of the headquarters and out to the front lines where it used to be, and then they don't have anywhere near as much control and power and they can't make the Wall Street investors happy. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe we've gone too far. Maybe you cannot roll this back. I, I just had a conversation today with my daughters. They were talking about a store they had been to with, the, with my wife and how they got very poor service. Uh, and I said that um, anytime you get poor service anywhere, at, at, particularly at retail, but in any b- industry, that's not the employee's fault. That's the manager's fault because that employee has either not been taught or not being held accountable. And the manager's job is to equip people to do to excel at their job and to get rid of the people who refuse to excel. Uh, and so while, yes, it is it is the, the employee's fault for being rude and careless, it's more the manager's fault for, for having that employee. Um, and and that, you know, that sort of thing, we've lost that value, I would say. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a common theme among old folks. They always look back at the, the, the younger generation and, and talk about what they've lost. Uh, I was reminded as you were talking, uh, Seth, of, uh, of the Ents in J.R.R. Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, there's a, a line in there that, you know, the big tree people, there's a line in there where they say, uh, it takes a long time to say anything in ent tongue, so we don't say anything that isn't worth taking a very long time to say. Um, and back when everything took longer, you prioritized and you only did the things that were worth taking a lot of time to do. Now when things are faster, you don't prioritize, you just do everything poorly instead of doing a few things really well because you can. And that is uh, an unintended consequence of speeding up our society is that we, we no longer as a society, we no longer teach the skill 
of prioritizing what you're going to do based on importance. Um, we do a minimum job of, of everything instead of a good job of one or two things. You, you talked about writing letters, you know, um, the Romans, uh, and, and you know, you don't even have to go back that far. Uh, the in our own country in the 17 and 1800s, people were letter writing was an activity. A man would get up in the morning, and he would have breakfast, and he would talk to his family, and then he would begin the task of writing his letters. He was a man of letters. That's the that's what that term uh, means. And so he would write letters. He would read letters. He would correspond with people, and that was his daily activity was writing letters. Um, we've lost that skill because we no longer consider that an important important task because we can send brief uh substanceless messages uh at any time so the art of creating substantive messages uh has faded and i don't i I don't think that's the fault of technology it was definitely a consequence of technology so if if we can't roll it back whether we do or we want to or we don't want to or at least reclaim the things that we feel are of value that are being eroded away by digital. So, and we know what the status quo is now. What's the future? Where does this go now? Here, it's only, you know, it it might not be worse, but here's another uh, anecdotal story. I was, um, I, I worked with the youth at my church for a while and we're talking, this has been over five years ago now. Uh, we, we took the kids off to summer camp, you know, they're gone for a week and we made the rule then no electronics. And it was hard for them. Then it was like the, the counselors have phones and here's our numbers. So if the parents have emergency, they can call us, but we wanted the kids to bond as a group and get the maximum experience out of camp. And you can't do that. You know, if you're talking with all your friends who didn't come. And so one of the things we had them do is like, okay, write a letter to home. Well, over half of them did not know how to address an envelope. So we had to teach them how to address an envelope. They had no clue how to do it because they'd never written a letter that, you know, um, and we, I mean, I haven't written a letter in years, but I could sit down and write an envelope, you know, write the outside of an envelope, the, the, the return address and the who it's to, but they literally didn't know. And so that was five years ago. We're five years in, further in the future now. People, you know, it, it's the way of life that so many of, you know, I, I'm more of a... um what is the word anachronistic person. So I like to look back rather than look forward. And it's so much of the life I knew is darn near impossible and it, it's still possible, but it takes much more effort than it would have taken back then. And, but I think the, the, the thing there that we're uh, miles mentioned it and, and you sort of skirted around it is the, the importance of these things. Um, do we as a, a society consider addressing an envelope important no we don't it's uh it is a it is a uh lost skill for the most part because even when we do need to address letters i mean i get letters in the mail every day and they're addressed by a robot somewhere um there, there are systems that know how to do that there is a procedure and and letters are still a thing and people still write them but it's all automatic i in some uh digital uh content management system compose the text and, and hit send, and it goes off to something to be duplicated a thousand times, um, and then it goes to a machine that folds and stuffs, and then to another machine that pulls out of the database and addresses the envelopes. Um, is It's not relevant in our society anymore 
for the average person to be able to to address an envelope. I mean, the last time I sent a letter was uh, 2000, 2001. I, I'm not making a joke here. That's the last time I, I put a, a letter in an envelope. I have sent packages, but talking about an actual letter, folded uh, a piece of paper three times, stuff it in an envelope, it's probably 2001, 2002, sometime in that area. So we're going on 14 years now since I've done that. Um, that's no longer an important task. But the the issue the my concern is that we are not as a society as a global society not just as Americans but as as humans um, we're not making we're not paying attention to what we're devaluing and yeah addressing a letter is a thing that we're devaluing but what are the important things that we're devaluing like for example face to face communications um, you go out to to a restaurant and if you can look up from your own phone long enough uh, you will see. Uh, that you know the large percentage of the people sitting in an American uh, casual dining restaurant um, are not making eye contact with one another. They're taking pictures of their food and showing the the other people, look at this picture I took, or they're sh- they may be sharing a screen, but they are not interfacing with each other. And I feel that that is an important skill that our society is losing. But who's to say what's important? I mean, doesn't decide doesn't society decide what's important? Um, and does it? You know, what does it take to bring something back to the forefront? Does it take, um, you know, some calamitous thing? History says yes. Um, can we can we avoid, can we can we resurface things to the top without, uh, you know, something serious? History says no. I, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, look, if you think about what we've gone through, say, in the last 20 years, moving digital, and how our lives are now, and then, and then we're trying to think back about what it used to be like and how difficult it would be to go back to that. And then I look forward to the next 20 years, and the things that I see that are dominant are automation, robotics, artificial intelligence. You know, you don't drive your car, your car drives you. Um, everything's done for you by a machine, by a robot. We're further succumbing to that. Ultimately, what we're doing is we're giving up our own personal power to the providers of that technology, those robots. You've got countries who are, uh, you know, politics, as much as I don't want to bring it up, but, you know, we talked this week, we had a labor report, labor numbers came out in the United States. And it shows, a, you know, a, a, a nice trend of decreasing unemployment rate and so on. But what it doesn't talk to is the fact that we are probably likely by various different policies going to bring back a lot of manufacturing work into the United States. And my gut feeling is it's going to have a net zero effect on labor employment because even though we might be making something out of Denver or out of, you know, I don't know, Alabama or something, it's not going to employ people in the local town because it's going to be done by robots. So what's going to end up happening is that we're going to create a perpetuation of this digital world that that moves more into our physical space rather than less. And as it does that, we're going to get in the way of it. We're going to be pushed aside. It will take over and we'll be left clamoring trying to work out what just happened and then realizing that, well, you could say, well, if your kid's going to go to college and they want to survive in the future, make sure they do STEM, you know, science, technology, math, and so on. 
that's only going to last for 10 years before the robots don't need to be built anymore. They're already there. They just want to keep churning them. And some guy in a big skyscraper on Wall Street sitting back going, watching a monitor going, churn more, churn more, churn more. Meanwhile, you've got a couple of hundred people out in the town that used to be employed at, at the factory or at least at the shipping and receiving dock getting the products that came back from China. And they're sitting around going, I've got no job now because it's all being done by machine. And I know that sounds so pessimistic and it parrots so many political ideals, but I don't think there's much of an alternative to that. And I really would like to know if there was. Um, do you guys see an alternative to that? Seth, what are your thoughts? I mean, you know, I don't see a good alternative. I mean, the way to do that is individual responsibility. However, individual responsibility is cast off by society until it reaches critical mass. So who wants to take the time to do the hard thing and be responsible for themselves today so they can be responsible for someone else tomorrow? You want to satisfy yourself today, not even thinking about tomorrow. You know, short-term pain, long-term gain. Nobody wants to do that. We have become, in America, I can't, you know, I can't, I've only seen bits and pieces of the rest of the world. But in America, we have become a slave to leisure. And we we don't know what sacrifice is, has a country, has a whole. Individuals do. There is still a while not, you know, majority, there is still enough of a minority of people who know self-sacrifice for the good of others that is keeping a total collapse from happening, but that's only going to last for so long. Well, Bill Gates got on the news this week and did an interesting thing. He was interviewed. I can't remember the whole story. I have to look it up, but he proposed taxing robots. And I thought, what? <laughs> and then I looked at it and I thought, Oh, okay, I get it. You're saying that if you displace 20 workers with a machine and those 20 workers used to pay income tax and sales tax when they bought their stuff and property tax for their homes and everything else, that if you're going to kick them aside so they're no longer employed, regardless of how they survive, which is a whole other story, somebody still has to bring in income for the government. So you're going to tax the robots, so, mm, that's interesting. Is that going to happen? What do you think? Mark? I, I think that's stupid. Uh, but the, the, con the, my, the flaw in that thinking is that government has to survive. Um, and the government, as it is today, uh, doesn't have to survive. Uh, it can certainly be modified in many ways and still uh, fulfill the basic functions for which it was created however it is an un unavoidable reality that as people uh are unable to produce incomes because technology has supplanted them we as a society will have to take care of those people um whether that's a government dole or whatever that process is it has to happen people have to be taken care of or euthanized. <laughs> Those are the only two options. And if we just uh, assume that uh, that our government and that the global society uh, will not consider euthanasia uh, uh, an option, we have to find a way to support these people who have been displaced by uh, technology. 
I think that's three or four or five generations away. I don't think we're anywhere near that right now. But I've been wrong as often as today. So, you know, we'll see. But, you know, here's the thing. You talk about society, and it it will be the elites of whatever day that is, responsibilities to take care of them. How do the elites of today want to take care of the masses? You look at people like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, who is like a big proponent of, you know, America needs to accept just every refugee in the world who has a problem come to America, but yet... He, because he has made his fortune off the backs of those people, uh, us Americans, mostly to the rest of the world, to a lesser extent, he has bought up not only a huge mansion, but he doesn't want to have to see any of the refugees that come to America. He's bought up every mansion around his, and he's trying to sue people to get an island to himself. But yet you listen to him. America needs to accept refugees, but not the elite America who can afford to not accept them. But people like me, I have to accept them because I'm not rich enough like him. And so, you know, granted, that's just one person, but that's the attitude of the social elite today. What makes us think the attitude is going to be different tomorrow when we have less power to, you know, I didn't even know Microsoft had a social network, but their social network, the day this show comes out is the day it dies. And when they announced it, one person on their blog post said, gee, I'm going to miss this. Uh, <laughs> of the five comments on their blog post about it, one was one was like, golly, I'm going to miss it. Nobody else even, I didn't even know. So whenever my only option of communication is Facebook, because I don't know anybody else's phone number. I only have Facebook or the Facebook messenger crap. They try to stick on your phone. Um, you know, then somebody like him has more power to force me to accept people that he doesn't have to because his wealth precludes him. So that's what we have to look forward to as a society. Now back to you, Mark. <laughs> and, and everything that you're saying, uh, again, history has, has proven these things, right? Uh, you know, the Romans, um, were a great society who um, eventually found that the uh, the wealth of the few could not be supported by the poverty of the many, and they collapsed and, and it fell into barbarism for a couple of generations. Um, the you know the, the, the Greeks, much the same story there, the Syrians, much the same story there. Um, it's a, it's a common rise and fall. We would like to think that we're enlightened now, and we can't do that, uh, but that's probably not where it's going to be. We're going to have another Uyghur rebellion. We're going to have another, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bloodite rebellion. We're going to have uh, people destroying technology. That's what's going to happen. It's going to become um, an anti-technology sentiment, and people in the streets are going to be taking sledgehammers to the robots. Uh, and we will devolve into chaos for a generation, and then we'll rebuild again, uh, only to start all over again. I, I think that, again, if you believe that history repeats itself uh, and that the humans are humans regardless of the time, that's sort of an inevitable reality, but it's not the final reality because we will start again. We will build build another society. We will make the same mistakes again. Um, you know, until such time as humanity no longer exists, uh, humans will be humans. My, my concern is, is what I can do to insulate my own progeny, uh, uh, from that, you know, and I, and at this point, Miles, um, engineering science and technology is the, the way to go. That's the skill that people are going to have 
uh, in the future uh, for the, you know, the, the short term future. Is it a long term thing? I don't know. I, I think in the end, serving humanity is always the way to to survive. Find a way to serve those around you. And you want to get rich, you serve them better and you serve them more. Uh, and I don't think technology will ever change that maxim. What, what do you say to that, Miles? I, I see a lot of things going on around me that are evident, evidence to exactly what you're talking about, to exactly what you're looking at, but I see it happening far quicker. Um, the first thing I noticed is that technology – okay, I'm a technologist, been that way for a long time. Um, a lot of a lot of the people I work with, a lot of the people who I know who are in that sort of field, um, they kind of have an attitude of like, well, we we went out there and invented all this really cool stuff, and then some boss or some company bought it, stole it, copied it, whatever it whatever, and they're using it for all these nefarious purposes we never intended it to be used for, and there are you know like, there's so many examples of that. A lot of those people, depending upon their own personality, they take up their own sledgehammers in a digital way and they become hacktivists or they become revolutionaries in the digital space. And they're the guys who start WikiLeaks and they're the guys who, you know, do all this sort of stuff. Well, they're being targeted very, very, very heavily right now by government, law enforcement, everybody else because of what they can do that will disrupt this projection to the future. Because we don't want them hacking our bank accounts. Well, to be honest, most of them don't hack your bank accounts. They're trying to open up, find Trump's tax returns, or they're trying to, uh, you know, upturn a, a an asset protection company in Panama and show all of the people, you know, hiding their assets in the Cayman Islands. That's the stuff they want to get into. They're trying to find all the leaks in the CIA. And whether or not you think that's a just act or a not just act, the reality is it's a statement coming from the very people who built the technologies in the first place saying, we don't agree to the way in which you're using what we built. And I see that that becomes the thing that slows down the progression between between where we are now and the ideal that the elite ends up owning and buying all of the technology and tools and the entire means of production, and they don't allow the masses to participate. Then you've got a secondary part of that problem, and that would be government, which is unable to enact law to protect the masses because the elite controls the spin that then turns that back onto the people and says, yeah, but you don't want to have to pay more taxes. Well, the reality often is that you pay far, far more to the elite to buy something from their world than it would be if it was dished out in a fair way. Unfortunately, fair isn't something that government's very good at doing. So we end up in a situation where we end up fighting all these little fires to try to put out the fact that we don't want to pay more for healthcare or we don't want to pay more for products that are taxed on the border or we don't want this or that. And we all get sort of dissuaded around that world. Meanwhile, the elites continue to build up and build up and own more of the means of production, more of the of the technology, more of the robots, and then we find ourselves in a situation where we hit that tipping point. When is that tipping point? I don't know. You, you're saying a couple of generations. I think it's a little sooner than that. I think it could be 20 years. 
I don't know. Science, technology, math, yes, learn it, know it. But the fact is that if you don't own the means of production, it's irrelevant whether you're smart or not, right? Because you can't get the opportunity to practice what you've learned. So I, I'm not sure. I, maybe I'm – here I go off in a, in a total libertarian kind of slash conspiracy theorist rant. But I just – at this point, it just scares me even thinking about <laughs> – Living a world analog than digital, not because I don't think I could. I know I could live analog. I know we all could live analog. But I just wonder whether we've succumbed to the red pill <laughs> and we've gone too far down that path and there's no turning back now. So it's a great discussion, but it's never going to happen. I, I had no idea this is the direction that this, <laughs> this thought experiment would take us, but it's certainly been an interesting discussion. Um Interestingly, though, uh, it it devolves down into and and what many uh, discussions we've had uh, over the last you know years of the show, uh, the reality that there will always be elites, and the elites will always be in control. Um, technology was supposed to fix that. It was supposed to be the great democratizer. It was supposed to to suck power from the elites and give it back to the people. That was the promise of of fast publication and unfettered thoughts um are you saying that's a failure uh i think it's a failure of the way in which we've embraced it uh i think that we've we've given up we've we've gained a lot in our ability to communicate we've lost a lot in the ability of what servers we're communicating through we don't own facebook so they can take whatever we say and turn it around, twist it, move it, you know, nullify it, make it irrelevant. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we still have to pay our internet bill and we still are subject to that company and they're making billions of dollars and we're not. Okay, Mark, you didn't proclaim the – you proclaimed the lie. You said it will take from the elites, yes, but then the lie was it will give it to the people. The truth is it takes from those elites and it makes them elites. So you've got elites and the elites are different. The promise of a free and open internet is out there, but I can't even remember the name of the friend network that it, you host on your own computer and uses a uh, torrent like thing to replicate. But there's one out there that I own my content and I share with who I want the way I want as much as I want, but nobody knows that one. That's the one that gives that breaks up the power to everybody. Everybody jumped on Facebook and made the people who created Facebook and got in the dorm room, it made it made a new set of elites and it weakened the elites of the telemarketers. So it didn't give the power to the people. It took from some elites and made more elites. And it and, and, made some people who were elite less elite. And to add to that, it made the people who were getting what they perceived to be a free service to socialize with their other friends the product that the elites would sell back to them. You know, we all hate the elite all while trying to become them. Um, let's not forget. Yeah. That's the natural part of human, uh, human nature. Are we, are we vilifying people unnaturally because we want to be them and we're not? Ooh, that's a good one. Well, that comes down to a moral decision, doesn't it? I mean, at some point you have to say, well, you know, I, I was in a meeting uh, with a client few months ago and this young guy it's about 27 
um, he had said something at the meeting that really struck a chord with me. They were talking about it, uh, some sort of a decision the company was going to make in regards to a, a practice that they were going to do. And it was in the back of my mind, I, I, was, I didn't work for them, I was a consultant, so I couldn't say anything. But in the back of the mind, what I'm thinking is these guys are talking about doing something which would be, in my, in my book, unethical, immoral, all that sort of stuff. And what I heard them say, it's not a big company, by the way, it's like, you know, 100 people. What I heard them say, they justified the decision to, to want to move towards becoming the very elite that you allude to with the simple three words, business is business. And that drove me nuts <laughs> because at that point I realized that morality is irrelevant and if business is business and that's all this is about, I don't know if I want that world to be the world I live in, you know, well, the world I raise my kids in. Business is not just business. We've got people. We've got lives. I mean, I'm not going to go to my deathbed worry about did I do enough business. I mean <laughs> – what point is the have we lost the plot? But I mean, that's one isolated incident. I'm sure there's plenty of others that don't go down that path. But it, it goes to your point about everyone wants to be the elite, right? Yeah, and and everybody claims the moral high ground once they get there. I am rich and powerful because I am good. Right, might makes right. <laughs> um, that again, that's the the, the story down through history the more i become a student of what we were the more uh cognizant i am of what we are um anyway i i'm gonna get off of this because uh frankly i think we're, we're starting to talk in circles a little bit here and uh you know miles you're becoming more of a bleeding heart commie liberal uh, every, with every moment <laughs> <laughs> yes comrade <laughs> you know uh, i mean we I'm not. I'm not going to go there, but I will say that there have been several uh, government um, organizations. Government. What's uh, uh, I'm I'm blanking on the word. There have been several forms of government postulated that are supposed to fix that. Communism being one of them. You know, there are no elites in communism, except in practice. In theory, there's not. There are no elites in sur socialism. In theory, except in practice. Um, and it seems like we're always trying to. Uh, to create the perfect system. Capitalism was supposed to be that perfect system. You know, everybody has equal opportunity and yet we've, you know, just spent the last several minutes talking about how capitalism creates elites. Um, the, the fact is there will always be people wanting to stand at the top of that hill. Um, and no matter the, the system of government, no matter the technological infrastructure, no matter the, the mechanical infrastructure, there will be people who find a way to do it. Um, the best you can hope for is to, put as moral of people as possible in that position you know is 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 not the benevolent dictator the the most efficient form of government i don't know rome was at its best um the golden age of rome is known as the five good dictators not the anarchy of the republic so just a little bit of history for all of us history buffs who idolize um the virtues of rome <laughs> Well, no, absolutely. I had no idea this is the way it was going to go, but that's the beauty of thought experiments. They make you think. Um. Well, I, did you think this conversation would go down this path, Mark? <laughs> oh, and, and Seth has gone completely silent. Skype has, has, has taken him away from us. 
We'll never know. Oh, let what he the has emails fly um, now. <laughs> we have some <laughs> news get here. Some response on this, but one, I, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't know that I want to talk about it. Uh, but a because of time and b because Seth isn't here. But I will want to talk about. Uh, uh, I'll let you pat yourself on the back a little bit here, Miles, in the Geek Rant Bats a Thousand category. Oh, yeah, yeah, we got a couple of wins um, this week. And it's not uh, – look, this could have gone anyway. But we we had said, what was it, a week ago about the Snap IPO, and we were all kind of down on the whole idea of like, really, that's an IPO? Well, CNBC agrees it's not an IPO because when Snap went public and eventually their shares went to 30 bucks, as of uh, end of Friday trading, it was 22, which is about where it opened up. And I think that tends to suggest to me that maybe it's not so much of a thing after all. <laughs> so so we predicted that one. And then another one that we came around with was uh, last week we were talking about uh, smart contracts and how Ethereum was uh, being used for that sort of thing. And I was pleasantly surprised when I looked at my uh, little Ethereum currency ticker this morning and it said that we were at 23 bucks in an ether uh, up from i think probably about 17 or 18 when we were talking about it last week so uh, i bought ether uh, yeah. at 13 There's another win. which at the so, time hey, was a historic you heard high. it here um, i mean we say so, you know don't uh, take it's, our it's advice made its way up and by, uh, by all means don't take my whole two ether uh, but sometimes you know two hey, right we now, get lucky. pretty so <laughs> i'm just going to wait and see what happens <laughs> Uh, this was this was a, an interesting show. I love these kind of discussions. I hope that you, the listeners, uh, like it too. Uh, you know, just smart guys <laughs> talking about stuff. That, that's kind of what Geek yeah. Rant is yeah. all about. People. Um, and uh, <laughs> not at all the, the show I had planned to do, but that's okay. I'm fine with that. Um, it sounds like we've been talking about history all this week, uh, all the show. So tell us what happened this week in history. Okay. So back in March 14th, 1955, so some, Bell Labs announces Target, Giant Brain. So AT&T, Bell Laboratories, they went back and put AT&T, it used to just be Bell Labs, um, announces the completion of the first fully transistorized computer, Tardic. Tardic, Tredic, eh, whatever. T-R-A, not T-A-R. Oh, yeah. You're, okay. you're a Whovian. Sorry, yes. I, I was I was going to – you took my defense from me. Shame on you. Um, Trade It contained nearly 800 transistors, which replaced the standard vacuum tube and allowed the machine to operate on fewer than 100 watts or 120th the power required by a comparable vacuum tube computer. Um, and this – the article didn't mention it, but it also reduces the form factor as well. So that happened this week in history. Low these many years ago, 1955, the first transistorized computer was announced. Yeah, the the 50s were the age of the transistor, the transistor radio, the transistor computer. That was that was the big thing. Uh, that guy won an, Aca- uh, an Academy Award, a Nobel Prize, a few years ago for the invention of the uh, the transistor. It uh, it ushered in it and enabled the digital age that we've been talking about um is he to be lauded or or, or blamed i don't know <laughs> uh prior to the transistor we were doing stuff i mean uh, all the same stuff we'd be doing it but there's the watch that i wear on my wrist right now would weigh about 43 pounds if it were vacuum tubes uh so it, it completely enabled this history that we've been this this future history that we've been sort of bemoaning 
uh, throughout the whole show. Uh, so curse you, Bell Labs, and thank you, Bell Labs. Yeah, and you know, it's not so much that we wouldn't have had computers, but there would have been like the everybody would have had a basement and their basement would have right. been their computer, you know, and then that would have provided heat for the winter and, uh, you know, it's underground. So the earth kind of keep it cool during the summer. So it's not so much. They didn't, they didn't envision a world with computers. They didn't envision a world with a computer on your wrist. Um, yeah. For this light project I've been working on, I've been dealing with MOSFETs, metal oxide, semiconductor field, electric transistors, which is just a fancy way of saying a switch that when low power is applied to one side can apply high power to the other side, a transistor. That's all a transistor is. Um, and it doesn't seem like uh, a big thing until you realize that somebody had to do it first. Right. And so I bought these MOSFETs for a buck a piece, uh, and I'm using essentially as an amplifier. I'm amplifying line-level signal to 12-volt-level signal. Um, and, and that sort of thing uh, done using transformers and vacuum tubes uh, is huge and expensive, and transistors changed it all. And Bell Labs was one of the first to put transistors to use in computing. So cool stuff. That you know, it was we may that may be Skynet, right? When when the machines send people back in time to stop the invention of something, they may go back and kill the guy that invented the transistor. <laughs> no, just me. Okay. I mean, how would they in, how would they live then without because. How, well, no. How would how would Skynet well, exist? Well, it'll be the, the it'll be the humans going back to destroy them, and the the machines trying to protect it. Right. Yeah. It, it won't be Skynet. It'll be transistors. So maybe they've already went back in time, and who we think, um, whoever this guy was who did this, was actually, was actually a machine. A machine that has assumed his persona because we killed him the first time <laughs> through. Or I guess the second time through. The first time through, he invented them. The second time through, we killed him. The third time through, it was a machine taking his place. And then it's just been, you know, we're up to 789 now. You ever thought about how bad Bill and Ted's first presentation must have been? Just think about that. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, we're, we're not going to do the news, but we will. Uh, I will let Seth do his show closing <laughs> spectacular. So, Seth, what do you have this week to lower my productivity? That's making you a better hire. I be Okay. Well, I changed it. <laughs> I, I had something. I'm going to maybe save it for later. But in lieu of our discussion, I found this. I read this in like I believe it was my freshman year of high school, and it has stuck with me and it fit here. So it is called "The Last Flower" by James Thurber, and. I, I don't know, Mark. What do you think? Can I read it, or do you think it's too long? Uh, go ahead. 1939. It should certainly be in the public domain. Right. Well, yeah, I found it. Uh, wordsmith.org. The link will be in the show notes. So, The Last Flower by James Thurber. World War Twelve, as everybody knows, brought about the collapse of civilization. Towns, cities, and villages disappeared from the earth. All the groves and forests were destroyed, and all of the gardens, and all the works of art. Men, <laughs> women, and children became lower than the lower animals. Discouraged and disillusioned, dogs deserted their fallen masters. Emboldened by the pitiful condition of their former lords of the earth, rabbits descended upon them. Books, paintings, and music disappeared from the earth, and human beings just sat around doing nothing. Years and years went by. Even the few generals who were left forgot what the last war had decided. Boys and girls grew up to stare at each other blankly, for love had passed from the earth. One day, a young girl who had never seen a flower chanced to come upon the last one in the world. She told the other human beings that the last flower was dying. 
The only one who paid any attention to her was a young man she found wandering about. Together, the young man and the girl nurtured the flower, and it began to live again. One day, a bee visited the flower and a hummingbird. Before long, there were two flowers, and then four, and then a great many. Groves and forests, groves and forests flourished again. The young girl began to take an interest in how she looked. The young man discovered that touching a girl was pleasurable. Love was reborn in the world. Their children grew up strong and healthy and learned to laugh and run. Dogs came out of their exile. The young man discovered by putting one stone upon another how to build a shelter. Pretty soon everybody was building shelters. Towns, cities, and villages sprang up. Song came back into the world. And troubadours and jugglers and tailors and cobblers and painters and poets and sculptors and wheelwrights and soldiers and lieutenants and captains and generals and major generals and liberators. Some people went one place to live, some another. Before long, those who went to live in the valleys wished they had gone to live in the hills. And those who went to live in the hills wished they had gone to live in the valleys. The liberators, under the guidance of God, set fire to the discontent. So presently, the world was at war again. This time, the destruction was so complete that nothing at all was left in the world except one man and one woman and one flower. Oh, I just thought it fit with our discussion today. So, <laughs> um, interestingly, this uh, 1939 that would have been in the run up to World War II when he was writing this. Actually, the world was already at war. We Americans were just That's had true. our fingers stuck in our ears. Uh, good point. Yes. How dare you, uh, your uh, Americocentric view of world history, Mark? Shame on you for not having compassion. Well, it's just my memory of dates, really, more than anything else. Uh, uh, all right, I'm so depressed now. <laughs> so, see, now you're now everybody who listens to this is going to be depressed and get fired from their job. Just be sure and El- <laughs> Seth at Elmo dot com so I can send my resume. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And that's why we shouldn't have technology. I mean, this whole show has been depressing. (laughs) Um, I think it does. Thanks for listening to our depressing show, everybody. We'll see you next week. (laughs) Goodbye.